If you have your Bibles today, again, I want to invite you to turn to the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. And as you know, we're in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. And uh, this is our third week in that particular chapter. And we have been dealing with the aspect of, of, of fellowship. And I've showed you how that this chapter is really the great defining chapter on the fellowship we should have uh, with, a, with the Lord Jesus Christ as a Christian uh, through our relationship. And we saw the first week, if you remember, how that the basic fundamental fellowship that we all should have is with truth. That's where it starts, being God's, God's Word. And then last week we saw as we grow and develop ourselves and we add those character qualities of Christ in our lives, we see ourselves grow and develop. Our fellowship also grows and develops to a greater level. We talked about that last week. You remember last week I showed you 10 things that we as God's people ought to be in fellowship with. And they're not all good things. And we define pretty much now we know that fellowship is more than just going out and getting a group of people together and having fun and going to get a bite to eat, though that's certainly a good thing to do, that the fellowship has much more deeper meaning than that. And I I told you last week that uh, this is a tremendous teaching chapter and shows us how we ought to be developing as Christians in everything and every aspect of our lives. You know, a lot of sermons and a lot of messages, you know, you can kind of conveniently kind of misplace them or blow them off or disregard them. But a chapter like this is really hard to do that. You know, if somebody comes and hears the message and hears the Word of God being preached, particularly like a chapter like this, it's really hard to do. Uh, You've got to be a pretty good artist at ducking God to be able to keep a chapter like this from knocking on your front door. Uh, it, it's something that really uh, forces us to really examine and ask ourselves, you know, are we really developing the way we should? Last week, I gave you 10 areas uh, that are, 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 are developing of our fellowship that ought to be in our lives. First of all, we talked about in much patience, and I explained these and laid them out for you. We talked about fellowship in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, which are great, you know, catastrophic things in our lives, in labors, in watching, in fasting. And I went through and I showed you and gave you a brief description of each one of them and in doing so, hopefully define them a little bit for you. But these are the things that as we develop and we grow, these are the things that we are to be in fellowship with, which the Bible talks about the sufferings of Christ. And I say again, not just because we go out and do something really stupid or do something that causes a lot of problems in our lives. I'm not talking about that kind of affliction or problems. I'm talking about as you grow and you bear the cross of Christ. You know, I always think of one of the greatest examples of, of, of what our life should be is the day that Christ went to the cross to be crucified. And uh, he's carrying the cross, and the cross probably weighs somewhere between two and 300 pounds. It was no, no small uh, cross that he had to carry. And as he, as he carried that cross, he obviously stumbled and, and, and fell and, and wasn't keeping up with the Romans' pace as much as they wanted. The Bible says that uh, during that time that they were throwing rocks at him, they were making fun of him, they were spitting on him, they were obviously doing all the things that a rabid crowd does to somebody who uh, they hate. Uh, they were doing all kinds of things to him, throwing things, hitting him, pulling his beard, and all of that stuff. 
Bible says that they compelled one Simon a Sherinian. And they got him out of the crowd. Now, who knows how, why, but they grabbed him and threw him in there and made him help carry the cross of the Lord Jesus. And I looked at that story many, many times, and I thought to myself, you know what? If we could picture that in our mind this morning, that's exactly the job of you and me. First of all, we are to help the Lord bear the cross, the cross being the ministry that God has called us to do. Second of all, I guarantee you that when Simon Serenian got thrown in there, uh, 50 feet down the road, I'm sure the road was lined with people, 20 feet down the road, I'm sure everybody did not make any difference between Simon the Serenian or the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure he got kicked. I'm sure he got things thrown in his face. I'm sure he got hit with stuff. I'm sure that the crowd that was out of control by this point, fervored by the devil to, to destroy the Lord Jesus, I'm sure Simon Serenian, helping the Lord carry that cross to Calvary, I'm sure he got beat, kicked, spit on, and everything that happened to the Lord happened to him. You know, I've looked at that many, many times and pondered that story and thought to myself, that's the same affliction that we ought to have if we're bearing the cross uh, for the Lord Jesus and helping him accomplish what he wants to get accomplished. And these 10 things here uh, are what go along with that. Now today, I told you the key word uh, for uh, these 10 things was the word in. And these are the things you're supposed to be in fellowship with. And it's very important. And then today, I'm going to show you the next segment. And this is nine things by which we have our fellowship. So you have a situation here where uh, last week we saw the 10 things we're to be in fellowship with. Now I'm going to show you the nine things this week that we keep our fellowship by. It's by these things. And this will be our third section. And with the understanding of these nine areas, uh, we'll see by these things how to keep our fellowship with Christ and keep developing it. Uh, this message is without a doubt probably uh, the most important in all of the segments we're going to look at in this chapter. Uh, for without this one, uh, you don't know how to keep and maintain, you know, that fellowship. You see, it's one thing to say, well, I have fellowship with God. That's great. But it's something else to know how to maintain that fellowship with God. And that's going to be our, our lesson today. I think it would be safe to say probably that we've talked a lot lately about the judgment seat of Christ and how that impacts your life and my life. And I, I think it would be safe to say today that, that probably a message like this or maybe this study, putting it all together, is probably going to make you or break you at the judgment seat of Christ if you're a child of God. It, it, probably everything that uh, you're going to uh, have at the judgment seat of Christ hangs on uh, you getting what we're talking about down, not only today, certainly today, but throughout this whole aspect of having fellowship. You know, and I'm sure you probably already know this because you're pretty smart people, but there are certain things you have to do uh, when you have a relationship, any relationship. And we all have relationships, and you know this to be true. I'm sure you do. There are certain things you have to do to maintain that relationship to keep it going. Uh, and in the same respect, or the same way, you have to keep developing that relationship for it to, to, to be successful. You know, I, I take something that you're all familiar with. And the longer you're married, the less familiar you are with this, I hope, anyhow. But uh, dating, 
<laughs> you know, if, if, if when you dated somebody, and you all, you obviously all, if you're married today, you you always you obviously dated uh, the person that you're married to, and, and you know that in dating, if you never progressed past the first date, you never would have gotten married. I mean, it, it's just the way that it goes. In dating, you develop two aspects, whether you know it or not. And that leads to the developing of your relationship to the point where, at some point, you want to get married. And those two basic formats that you have in dating are simply relationship and fellowship. And, uh, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what, what do you think is the number one problem why people get divorced? And I always kiddingly tell them the number one problem why people get divorced is marriage. <laughs> you know, I'm just kidding with them. But in truthfully... If you would ask me, what is the number one reason why marriages don't make it? And it's, it's very clear. And you want to learn this if you're going to work with people down the line because it's so simple. It, it, marriages fail today. Marriages break up today uh, in a failure of these two areas, relationship and fellowship. They either don't have the right relationship when they start or they don't develop the relationship. I mean, you don't develop these two before you get married. You know what? You're not going to get married. You can't just drive and never talk, go out someplace and never say anything to each other and wind up someday married. You have to develop that relationship, and as the relationship develops, you have then fellowship, and that's really what brings it all together. Uh, If you don't develop those two things, you're never going to get married. And after you are married, if you don't continue to develop those two things, you won't stay married. It's just that simple. Life and problems that people go through is, only seem to be complicated. They usually have a very basic format why things happen to people the way they do. Uh, in marriage, when I teach, when I deal with marriage issues or I teach marriage enrichment or, or whatever I lay out, you know, I teach marriage is basically three things. And when I work with couples that are having marital problems or we do premarital counseling with somebody before they get married, uh, I, I talk about the three absolutes that you got to have in marriage. Uh, and the first one is lordship. And lordship simply means that you both have to be saved. There can be, and we'll see it when we get on a little farther in this chapter, not today, but down the line. Uh, the Bible talks about not marrying unsaved people. The Bible calls it not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And I, I tell young couples all the time, you know, I tell anybody that's having marital struggles, your marriage will only be as strong together as your individual relationship is one-on-one. And you know what that is? That's lordship. Lordship is your ability that you have a relationship with God, you and your spouse separately, that brings a lordship relationship back together. The next thing, uh, the aspect is fellowship. And those would be the things that you go through together with Christ. Not by yourself. You know, most couples, because they have no lordship in their life, They never get to the point where they have a fellowship in their life. So problems then pull them apart instead of putting them together. You see, in Christianity, the things we go through are by God's design. The book of Job. The things that we go through as Christians, God intends, allows them in our lives that we might be able to grow together with him through that. He comes through for us. We get in a panic mode, oh, what I'm going to do, and then God comes through for us and shows us, and that's how you build your, your fellowship with him, and you learn how to trust him. And for a Christian's life, 
the things that we go through in life, the struggles that we have, whether, hey, whether we cause them or not, God is a, is a holy God and a righteous God, but, and he lets us get into messes, but God is not without a warehouse of life preservers to throw us if we need one. And he does it all the time. And it's a thing where, you know, he allows us to go through those things. And by that, those things ought to bring us closer together with him, not farther apart. I, I tell people all the time, the tough times you go th- through will either drive you to God or drive you away from God. It's just simple, that simple. And of course, uh, you know, in a husband and wife relationship, that's what fellowship is. When you are in fellowship with the 10 things I gave you last week as a Christian, it makes you stronger. When you have fellowship with those same ups and downs that you have through a marriage relationship, you become stronger. The good times should develop you and your spouse. The bad times should develop you and your spouse. You pull you together, not pull you apart. I tell couples that have severe problems, I, I tell them, I said, you know, you got yourself in a mess. And you got yourself in a mess because there was no lordship and there was no fellowship. And they didn't have the third and we haven't got here yet. Uh, but you didn't have that in your life. So now you're in a mess. Now, you got two choices. You can continue to blame each other. Or you can, can, you can start to take the individual blame, deal on your own personal life, get your lordship right, and then, and then get your fellowship back and then be, be build into the next one. I say, look at it this way. You're both up on a high mountain in Colorado. And you both fall at the same time. And you both fall and you, sir, are standing here. You break your, your left leg. Your wife breaks her right leg. Now, she can't help you down. You can't help her down. How are you going to get off that mountain? You got no cell phone service? The, no, no dogs around with a keg of brandy underneath his neck? You're, you're looking like you're going to be in trouble. And I said, here's what you ought to do. You want to splint the broken leg. So here's what you do. You, you were lucky. You broke your left one. She broke her right one. Put her right broken leg up against your left broken leg. Splint them together. And then put your arms around each other and use your good leg on this side or her good leg on that side and help each other down off that mountain. That's how you get out of marital problems. You, if you really want to get out of them, you got to help each other down that. And it comes from lordship and then fellowship. And then the third one, when you build those two, then it leads to relationship. And relationship is the thing, where the fellowship is the things that you go through but the relationship that you build from your lordship and your fellowship is the thing that holds it all together all the time. And you become each other's best friend. Now that's the thing that holds it together through the rough times. And by your relationship, by these things, your fellowship will never get broken and your marriage stays strong and develops and even gets stronger. Now, I said all that to say this, because that's exactly the same three areas that you have to build in your relationship with Christ, who, if you haven't figured it out yet, you are going to marry someday, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, in a spiritual marriage. Lordship. 
You see, that's your, on this scenario, that's your salvation. That's the day you got saved. That's the day you took Jesus Christ as your Lord. Now, whether you're doing right today or not is immaterial. If there was a day in your life when you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, that's your Lordship. And he, from that point on, should be number one in your life. Maybe he's not today, but he should be, and that is your Lordship. The second one, once you have that, builds then, as we talked about, through your fellowship. It starts with truth of your salvation and then develops in the things that you experience with Christ together, like we talked about last week, uh, those 10 things, and you grow in your fellowship. Fellowship of his sufferings, Philippians chapter through verse, uh, verse 10. We saw in Hebrews chapter 13 that as he suffered without the gate, you and I are to suffer with the things that he goes through. So we saw that last week. So in your relationship with Christ, in building it, you have your lordship, you got saved, you have your fellowship, those are the things that you're in, but you also then have your relationship. And when you have the fellowship and you're in fellowship with the 10 things I gave you last week, then you stay in fellowship by having a relationship. And I want to give you nine things today by which you build a relationship that keeps you in your fellowship. And uh, these things will maintenance a fellowship, that you'll never lose it, no matter how rough it gets. And whether it's a husband and wife relationship, it works for that. Whether it's your own relationship with Christ, it works for that. This is how it works. Now let's read our text again today, and let's look at the next set of uh, biblical principles here on, on fellowship. Now, I'm going to start reading where I read last week just so we can keep it all in context. And I, I read you, we only got past four and five. We're only going to get past probably six and seven today, but let's read it all together. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, these are the things we talked about last week, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watching, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, uh, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love un, 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 unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers uh, and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Now, Father, help us today to glean from this all that you have for us. We thank you, Father, for those that are here today. Uh, we pray for the ones that are sick that you'll help them and help them feel better and get back on their feet and work out all the different scenarios. And, Lord, there's many uh, as there are people sick today. So help them, Lord, and help us today uh, to, uh, to learn these great truths. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in our third section today, this will be verse 6 and 7. In this section, we find, as I've already told you, nine things by which... Nine things by which you keep your fellowship. God wants to have fellowship with you in the 10 things I gave you last week. If you want to stay in that fellowship, it's by these things that you stay in that fellowship. And then next week, uh, if we get through all of this today, then next week I'm going to take and show you the fourth section, and you're going to see, uh, you're going to see some great Christian contrast. I think there's eight of them. Great contrast. Uh, in, uh, between uh, that a Christian has in his life. And we'll talk about that next week. Now, 
When I start to lay these out, all these things here that we're about to look at are what I call the characteristics of what a Christian should be. These are the characteristics of someone who ministers. It's very important for by these, uh, these are the key to keeping your fellowship uh, as you build your relationship by, and you stay in fellowship by doing these things. And we'll begin to talk about them here. Now, the first one's found in verse six. We'll get started here. He says this. He says, by pureness. Now, the ministry consists for the person, the child of God, consists of keeping yourself pure. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, Paul tells young Timothy this directly, and it's good advice for all of us. He says, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other man's sins. Keep thyself pure. Uh, watch, uh, and he's saying here, watch the crowd you hang out with. Of all the fellowship you have and all other relationships, and we all have them, we all have them. We all have fellowship with people that uh, are in various relationships, people that work, they're on different levels, you know, people that are our friends. But the thing you got to remember or try to do is always put the relationship with the Lord first. That has to be uh, the first one. I've told you before, and it's a great principle that you'll use over and over again. You can't build two intimate relationships at the same time. By saying that, I mean you can't build a, uh, an intimate relationship with a person that you just met uh, and build one with the Lord. Uh, it's impossible. You just can't. You've got to have your relationship with the Lord solid first, and then you can build uh, into that and build on that. And every other relationship you would have developed or every other relationship you would do, you'd build into that relationship you have with Christ. I told you last week, First John chapter 1, verse 7, walking in the light as, as we are in the light, having fellowship one with another. I told you First John chapter 1, verse 3, uh, the Bible says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Wrong fellowship, we now know, our, kind of been our theme phrase throughout this study, wrong fellowship will always lead to out of fellowship. But at the same time, what do you do with it? I mean, I'm certainly not saying you void out all unsafe people out of your life, uh, but you have to know where to draw a line. I mean, maintaining your testimony in the Christian world and the unsaved world is, is vital, vitally important. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, there's a great verse, and if you can uh, grasp it, it'll really, I, I, it's always been a great verse for me. It says in verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, I want you to look at that verse, or listen to the verse, if you haven't turned to it. It says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. It didn't say workers of darkness. It said works of darkness. Because the Bible knows and God knows you're going to have to have some kind of relationship with unsaved people. You do it work. If we voided out unsaved people out of our world completely, well, we'd never win anybody to Christ. You have to be able to have contact, relationship to some form, and, and fellowship to some form with unsaved people. Uh, you know, you, they start the little athletic thing where they, we have our volleyball, we have our, we have our softball. We have unsaved people come to that, and we fellowship with them. And, you know, and when we go out and, hey, we went out and we go to Pappy's afterwards. Hey, there's been times when you brought somebody who was probably lost uh, to softball and they go over to Pappy's and we all order pizza and get a Coke and all that. And whatever they get, they get a beer. 
You don't see us running over with a fire extinguisher, dousing them out, you know. You don't see us running over and, and saying, you can't do that here. Now, I mean, but at the same time, at the same time, you don't see me ordering around for everybody else that's there so we can all be with them. You see what I'm saying? In other words, you have to draw a line someplace. I'm not saying you don't say you can't come back. That's ridiculous. Yet I know churches that would do that. That's not what you do. You can have the fellowship with them, but you got to be able to draw a line. You got to know where a line you can't cross. And you got to realize that uh, you, the fellowship is not, not necessarily with the workers. The fellowship is with what they do. I can have fellowship, and maybe you can't even grasp this. I don't know. I can have fellowship to a certain point with an unsaved person, but I'll never have fellowship with what they do. Now, let me show you a good example of that. There's some great examples in the Bible, but my favorite is, is the Apostle Paul. Now, you know and I know, and you'll find this in Acts chapter 21. Paul had a burden for the Jews, <clears throat> so much that in time, at the end, it got him into trouble. But Paul had a real burden for the nation of Israel. The first thing that he would do, now keep in mind, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. His job is to start Gentile churches. And yet, every time, the first thing he did when he went into a town is he went down into the Jewish temple. And he would talk with them. He would talk with them about uh, the differences between the law and try to convince them about Jesus Christ. But you ought to see what he did. And Acts chapter 21 is a great example. Now, the Jews had a lot of customs that that they, they went along with. And Paul was smart enough to know that if he was going to be able to have to talk with them, he was going to have to accept some of those. So you find in that chapter that he purifies himself. Now, did he need to do that? Absolutely not. He's as pure as he ever is going to get, but there's a bunch of Old Testament believing Jews that are still going through the Old Testament, so he did that. Did he violate any principle by doing that? Absolutely not, because he knew it didn't matter. The Bible says he cut his hair the way they cut their hair. Did that make a difference? No, absolutely not. He's trying to identify with them and trying to uh, to, to try to be able to witness to them and to tell them about Christ. And he knows that if he doesn't do some things, he'll never get in the door. Uh, he had Timothy circumcised, not here, but another place. He had Timothy circumcised when he went in because they didn't want somebody coming in that wasn't circumcised. That's an Old Testament Jewish thing. Now, did he have to have him circumcised? Absolutely not. Did it make any difference to God if he did or not? Absolutely not. In other words, you got to, in time, learn where you can draw the line and where you can't. Now, when Paul goes in, you look at the passage. <clears throat> he does everything that they do, but his purpose is he wants to win them to Christ. He wants to be able to tell them the story. So he does everything up to a point with them, except when it comes to 6 o'clock in the evening and they kill the sacrifice. And they made the evening oblation and the sacrifice, which was the Old Testament law. That's where he drew the line. You know why he drew the line? Because at that point, if he would have went along with that, he would have violated the major scriptures of Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10, and 11, that Christ was the sacrificial lamb, and there was no need for a sacrificial lamb, and he'd have been in trouble if he'd have stepped over that line. 
The hair didn't matter. Circumcision didn't matter. Everything that he did up to that point, it didn't matter. It didn't violate any hard doctrine. But when it came to the sacrifice of a lamb that we already knew was the sacrifice of God's lamb on the cross, he says, that's the line. I can't, I can't cross that line. And that's a great example of, what, of how we live our lives. Uh, we have to be pure. But yet at the same time, you can't keep all unsaved people out of your life. That's part of our job. Now, the second thing he says is in verse 6, he says, by knowledge. Now, if there's anything that the, obviously the minister needs or the Christian needs, it's knowledge. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But for, for a Christian, it's not just about getting knowledge. It's about you getting the right knowledge. That's what's important. And I put getting knowledge down in, in, in three formats. The first thing that you need to get the right knowledge is about is about the Lord. I want to tell you something. <clears throat> there are so many misconceptions about God in, in Christians' lives. You would be absolutely exasperated and wouldn't believe it how many people watch the History Channel and watch those programs about the crossing. I mean, there was one last week. I just watched it because, you know, I don't like video games. That it was as fun as thing, and then there was no presidential debates on. So I just watched it. It was hilarious. The great mysteries of the Bible explained. Let me retranslate that title. Getting, ready of, getting rid of any miracles supernaturally that God did and give you a plausible explanation so he can throw God out the door. It was ridiculous. But you'd be surprised how many people watch that. I, I, I've seen on there, the, will the real Jesus stand up? You know, <clears throat> about the apostles, about was Jesus married? Was all of this and all of that? You would be absolutely amazed of how many people watch that and take their, take their knowledge about God from something like that. Uh, the Internet's another one. Oh, my goodness. If you go on the Internet, you will find out today you are going through the tribulation period. Some of you will get on another Internet. You'll find out you missed the tribulation period. Some will get on there. If you get on a real honest one, you'll find out you're already in hell. That's probably the closest one. You'll find everything you want that means absolutely nothing about the Bible and its truth. But that's the way it is today. I think it would be totally safe to say that 90% of what most of God's people, and I know there's exceptions to the rules here. I'm talking about in general Christianity. I would think it would be safe to say that 90% of what the Christians today think about he knows about God is false. And it's all based on him not getting in the Bible. It's based on him hearing it from somebody else, reading this, reading that, reading everything about the Bible. Well, then the second aspect, the second format of you have to have knowledge, you have to have knowledge about yourself. I think the greatest thing that I ever learned that I could ever find out about myself, and I think it's probably the greatest thing that you could ever learn about yourself, if you're honest. But the, Somebody said one time, what's the greatest thing you ever learned? The greatest thing I ever learned was about me, not about God. But once I got a relationship with God, he showed it to me. But the greatest thing I ever learned was not about God or the Bible or the world or the Antichrist. The greatest thing I ever learned was about me. And you know what it was? And it ought to be the greatest thing you ever learned if you ever learned it. And that is that I am the source of my problems. I am my own worst enemy. And I'll tell you what, you and I are our own worst nightmare. 
A lot of people don't want to believe that. <clears throat> we live in a, in a blame game world where everybody wants to blame everybody else. Every circumstance out there except the end of the day, you better get some information about your knowledge about yourself. You know, we are our own problem. The choices we make in life will always point, or excuse me, the choices we make in life will always paint the portrait of who we really are. And sometimes the picture's not pretty. You know, it's like a snapshot of life. You're a snapshot of life today by the choices you and I have made. Your life, my life is a snapshot of where we're really at with the choices that we've made. And, I, and I've given you the biblical formula before, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, where you ought to examine yourself, you ought to know yourself, and you ought to prove yourself. I, I've talked to you how to deal with problems when you got them in your life. You get honest, you identify the problem, then you isolate the problem, then you annihilate the problem. You fix it. And that's just the way you go. And then the third one, knowledge about other people. You know, in helping people, there's a great truth you got to learn. I know the Bible, and we always say, this is not in the Bible, but we always say it, time heals all wounds. That's not necessarily true. I think on a worldwide scale, the last 7,000 years, you'd probably find out it's not very true at all. Uh, People don't change by themselves with just time. In the book of Judges, you find a great rule of human life on planet Earth. It's called the law of human collapse. And it simply is the first and second law of thermodynamics. We know it from Sir Isaac Newton's called gravity. Things left to themselves don't fall up, they fall down. And the longer someone doesn't fix the problem in their life, the longer and the worse that problem becomes. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you, you just, that's, what, that's the way it works. We, go, we, we don't get better with time. We, we, we get worse with time. And when I deal with, you know, and I, I, I always, I talk about, you know, tre- solving the problem, not treating the symptoms. And it's, it's, it, it, things get worse. And when I, but I, when I deal with people, and I have somebody come in, it's really in a mess. I, I've learned it's better over the years. For me, anyhow, just the way I deal with it, I don't, I know they got a lot of problems. And I know they got, they're in a big mess. But I find it's easier for them to deal with their problem if I just don't clobber them on the problems that they've got, even though they may be monumental. My approach is always, I guess, how God approached me. He says, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. I kind of follow that in dealing with people. When I sit down with somebody saved or lost and their life is a total disaster, I mean, you talk about not just a train wreck, but the whole railroad yard's off track. I don't always start out by pointing all the bad things in their life. A lot of times, most of the times, I'll focus on the good things in their life. And I'll try to get them to see that, you know what? Hey, because many cases, it's true. Many cases, I've said to people, you know what? The, you know what the tragedy is here? The tragedy is here that 85% of you is really good. You're a nice person. You got a nice spirit about you. You got a good heart. You, 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 you just, uh, so much of you is good. It's a this tragedy to me to see 10, 12, 15% of your life ruin the 85% that's good. And because that's true in so many cases. 
I've seen it to the place where I've said, you know what? 95% of you is just wonderful. But that 5% is going to kill you. And don't you ever think for a moment that you can have 98% of good in your life and 2% will eradicate that 98% because the devil see that it does. And you know, this is why we've been talking about Joel Osteen every week. I'm not even why I understand why I keep bringing him up, but he's such a great example. That's what people like about him. He always tells you the good that's in you. And I just kind of follow that format, except he never gets to the place where he then shows you what's bad about you. He just picks you up, makes you feel good, and leaves you there till you walk out the door and realize that uh, life was not what he said it is all about. He didn't fix anything. But I realize and understand how important it is to lift people up to get them to see because many times when people are going through things, they're really down on themselves. I mean, you've got to be dumb as a bed bug not to know that, that, uh, that your problems aren't because of your own choices. You may just not want to deal with it. And I found that getting people to deal with their problems is a lot easier if you, if you just focus on what's good. I have people all the time that, that, that they want to do things, and I know they're so erratic that they really, you can't count on them, but they'll come up to me and they'll say, Bob, I, I want to do this. Now, in, now, my first extinction is to say, no, you're not going to do that. But you know what? If I said, no, you're not going to do that, they're going to get mad at me. I know that. I'm smart enough to know they're going to take offense to that. So I've learned over the years. You know what you do? Somebody comes up who isn't going to do anything and says, Bob, I want to do this. I said, go ahead and do it. Now, you know why I said that? Because now I totally know they're not mad at me. They're happy, but I know I'm not, they're not going to have to worry about them doing it because they had no intention to do it. They just wanted to hear. I got, I'm telling you to do it. I got two other people over here. Be ready to do this because it ain't going to work out. I'd rather tell them, yeah, you do it and you not do it than me stand there and say, you can't do that. And then them get mad because once they get mad, I lose any chance of ever reaching them again. I'd rather say, yeah, go ahead and do it. And then them not do it. And then me just love them anyhow. And hopefully down the line someplace, if they ever get their head screwed on straight, I'd say, you know what? Look back on this. Remember how this was? That's how you do it. You got to have knowledge about people. People aren't bad inherently. It's the things that they do. And you got to be able to kind of lift them up to get them where you want them to be. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more as we get on through here in the, in, in, when, oh, in the next one, the, the third one. Long-suffering. Now, that's a good one. I, I, love, I love to talk about long-suffering because most people don't know what it means. Now, over there in Galatians 5, verse 22, there's nine fruit of the Spirit. The Bible says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Number four is long-suffering. Now, I know what everybody thinks long-suffering is. Everybody thinks long-suffering is patience. Now, you know how I know that long-suffering and patience are not the same thing? Well, one, they're not spelled the same. I'm not saying they don't go hand in hand, but let me give you a Bible definition. Now, this is really going to help you. This is going to, for a lot of you, is going to put some focus in your life and, and of where you're trying to get and helping people. 
And, uh, you know, long-suffering is not just patience, but it's much more than that. Yet it's such a simple concept. Long-suffering is suffering through something for a long time to bring about a desired end result. Let me give you the definitive verse on it in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Verse 18 says, I'll start at verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Which some, watch it now, here it comes. Which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved. You see what that thing? That's a definitive verse. Long suffering is waiting for somebody, putting up with something. Yes, patience, but more than patience. It's suffering through something with somebody because you got a desired end result you want to take place. That ark took 120 years to build. God's long suffering went on for 120 years. What was the end result? He wanted people to get on that ark. That's long suffering. That's long suffering. Long suffering is God suffered long with sin, put up with it for 120 years till the ark was finished. Why? The end result. He wanted men to repent. Now, watch this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Here's the application to it. How be it for this cause? I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering. Now he did. Now God may not have waited a hundred. Are you tired, Bubba? You're yawning over here. Are you okay? okay. You sit a little closer to him, so if he falls, nods off, you can just elbow him a little bit. You know they say when you yawn that your your brain's tired. I read that on. I got that off the internet when I got my sermon this morning. You know. No, I'm just kidding. Now, God didn't wait for all of us for 120 years. But I'll tell you this, he waited for me for 20 years. 20, 21 years of my life, I cared nothing about God. God should have put me in hell. He should have killed me and just dropped me in a lake fire. But he didn't. His long suffering for me lasted 20 years. And I don't know your own personal stories, but I know right now in your mind, you're all thinking how long he waited for you. It may not have been 120 years like it was then, but he waited for you. His long suffering went on with you through the things that we did, through the things that we said, through what he had to put up with us. But you know why he did it? Because he had an end desire result. He wanted you to get saved. Now watch. Now watch. Verse 20 again. Uh, verse 16 again, excuse me. First Timothy 1.16. How be it for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first... Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering. Here it comes, comma, for a pattern to them that should uh, hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. That's a pattern for you and for me. You see, God didn't, God didn't wait 120 years, as I said, but he waited for us. And that's the pattern, putting up with people that you'd like to shoot, putting up with people that you'd like to hang, put up with people that you'd like to tell them where to get off. You know what? If God would have done that for you and for me, we never would have gotten saved. Long suffering is putting up and suffering through something because you have a desired end result. That person getting saved, that person getting right, that person doing what they're supposed to do. Hey, listen, sometimes you have to wait on people to get them where you want them to be. 
Uh, you got to always put yourself in that, in that scenario. Sometimes people don't get where I would like them to be fast enough. And you know what? That's just the way it is. Some of God's people give up on people so quick. And I know, I'm telling you right here. <clears throat> you know, it gets down to be when somebody comes back to church eight or nine times and they go through the same pattern, they do the same stuff. I understand. There, there is a way, we'll talk about it here in a minute, how you deal with that. But <clears throat> you, at the end of the day, I simply never give up on anybody. I let that person give up on themselves. You know why? Because of that verse right there. The pattern for me in dealing with people is the pattern of long-suffering that God had for me. And sometimes you have to wait on people to get where you want them to get. Sometimes they take a long time to get there. And I want to tell you something else. This thing in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, which is talking about Genesis 6. Listen, sometimes they never get where they're supposed to because only eight people got saved. And he waited for the whole world's population, probably five billion people, to repent. Only eight people got saved. But you know what? The results never stop God from doing what's right. And when you and I do what's right, the end result never happens. It doesn't matter as long as I do what's right. That's where you got to get to. That's long-suffering. That's long-suffering. You may never get to where God wants you to be. You may make one bad choice after another, and you may just screw your life up royally, and you may never get where God wants you to be. You know what I think about that? I think about one thing. I'm ready whenever you're ready. But until then, you got to make your bad choices. You got to do what you got to do. You got to go through what you got to go through. I'm sorry, that's your call, that's your choice. But the long suffering of God never runs out on anybody. And so our long suffering toward people should never run out either. Doesn't mean I agree what they do, doesn't mean I like what they do, doesn't mean I want to stand and be a target and let you shoot at me. But I'm telling you right now, the bottom line is when you're ready to do right, I'm ready to do right. There'll never be a time. Now, there are a, a minor exceptions if somebody really tries to really hurt somebody or really does something. But in 99.99% of the cases, there's never a time when somebody can't say, hey, I want to do what's right, and the long-suffering is not there. The fourth one, verse 6, by kindness. Have you ever scratched your head and wondered why there's so many of God's people are so mean? I mean, there's so many mean Christians. I mean, all my life I've met God's people who just were mean as a striped snake. About everything. To everybody. Hey, you know what? It's like I said earlier, the older they get, the meaner they get. They don't get any better. They got a sour attitude about anything. And they me to believe they were, must have been baptized in dill pickle juice when they got saved. I don't know. They're negative about everything and everybody. You see it in their face and everything they do. Now, do you want to know why that is? This is a lesson this morning. You learn so much through these things. I'll tell you why that is, especially with a Christian. Now, an unsaved person, we know why he's, they're mean, but I'm talking about God's people. And really, most of God's people are meaner than most of unsaved people. I mean, if you're an unsaved guy and you're really mean, you just go get drunk and you feel happy with everybody. But a Christian not supposed to drink. Most of them don't drink. They just stay mean. They ought to drink. They'd be better about it. Didn't mean that, just throwing that in there. <laughs> now, you want to know why that is? I'll tell you why. Somewhere along life road, something happened, and they got mad at God about something. Maybe 
You'll never know what it is. Maybe it's been so long ago in their life, they've forgotten what it was. They don't even remember. But somewhere in their life, they got sideways with God about something, got mad at God, and they never made that thing right. Now, the devil took that thing and ran with it. Now, for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, they've had a grudge against God. Yet, they would never tell you that. They probably don't even remember, don't even know what it is. It was something that, it was so far back, but the bottom line is it ruined their fellowship, it ruined their relationship, they have nothing going with God. And then they go to a church where they see people that have been saved 10, 15, 20 years less than they have. And those people are going beyond where they're at, doing more than they're doing. And the most God-awful thing that could ever happen, these people are happy. (laughs) That's where it starts. That's why. That's why. I call them one Crayola Christians. When I was a kid in school, the highlight of my life was when I got a box of crayons that had 88 colors in it. And if you really were lucky, they had a pencil sharpener in the back. Man, I'd open that up and there'd be every color in a rainbow. I, I took my grandkids down to the Crayola uh, restaurant last night down at Crown Center to, you know, for dinner. And we spent the night together. And, and there was all, all, I think it was all the different colors along the deal up there. It's in a crayon box. There are probably more colors now. I didn't know there was 88 colors when I was a little guy growing up. But they had a big box of 88 colors. Of course, I was so stupid they could all be the same color. I wouldn't have known the difference. But I opened that up and there they all were, man. But I call these kind of Christians one, crayon, one Crayola Christians. Did you have fun last night with Grandpa? We had a good time, didn't we, huh? What did you buy at the store? Did you bring it this morning with you? You got your notebook with you? Your mom's got it? It was fun, wasn't it, huh? Next week, we're going to go to the drag races. (laughs) Out of all those box of colors in that crayon box, you just got one color, and it's always black. And all your life. Boy, ten people got saved. Yeah, well, I think it's a bad day. (laughs) The Lord's coming back. Give me a bigger black crayon. Well, let me show you what I found in the Bible. Oh, what do you know about the Bible? I've been in the Bible a lot longer than you. You don't know nothing colored black. One color. That's all they got. Everything in life, black. You know why that is? I'll tell you, you can't be right with God and be mad at the world. You know why that is? Because that world's your mission field. And I'll tell you something else. I tell people this all the time. Well, I don't like so-and-so. I don't like this. I don't like that. And I said, are they a Christian? Yeah, they're a Christian. I said, well, you know what? I don't know if he's got the problem, she's got the problem, or you got the problem, but you guys got to get her and get to fix the problem because the fact that you don't want to be together now, I got some really bad news for you. You're going to spend an eternity with that person. So you better figure it out right now. You can't be right with God and mad at the world. That's your mission field. Uh, the fact that in life you got sideways with God and it affect you in every area of your life. And now you're mad and you're bitter at the world. You're mad and you're bitter at God's people. And the fact that you go to a church where people who are, who are saved less than you are now moving ahead and doing things. You see, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 22 says, the desire of a man is his kindness. That desire is the desire of his heart. 
Second Peter chapter one verse seven and eight says, uh, and again one of the seven things we add to our faith over there. He says, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. Ephesians chapter four verse thirty two says, and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. What's your model? What's your pattern? Even as God, for Christ's sakes, has forgiven you. You know, sometimes somebody can hurt you so bad that the only way you can forgive them is for Christ's sake. You can't even do it for yourself. But a Christian should never get to the place where they can't do it for Christ. Oh, that's a powerful thing if you ever get it. You see, your kindness to others is based on your fellowship with God and the joy that comes from it that nothing will cause you to lose it. I'm not going to let some Christian... I'm not going to let some unsaved person. I'm not going to let something happen uh, in, in my life that's going to take from me my fellowship that I have with the Lord. I'm not going to let that happen. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a thing where, you know, a person gets to that point where they got a problem with God, they lose the joy. You ought to see him sometime. You ought to, Danny, I don't, if you're in here, you may be in the back. Oh, there he is. Next time, some weeks on, if get next week. You know, got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. You know that song? We're going to sing that next week and just stand up here and watch the faces. Some of you are like, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in, you're going your way to heaven. Some of you are going, I got the joy, 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 joy down in. You're bouncing, man. Then he got there and go, oh, the joy, 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 joy. Down in my heart. Yeah, down in my heart. And then you hate it because down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? <laughs> Lost it. Lost it. Well, number five. By the Holy Ghost, verse six. Now, I want you to notice here it says Holy Ghost and not Holy Spirit. That's really important. We've talked about it before. Whenever you find the word Holy Ghost, it's always a reference to the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. So it's called the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost is the key factor in our relationship with Christ. You know, in the Bible, and probably don't even have this, but if you want to study the Holy Spirit of God, you study Him in three formats. The first thing you study is the work of the Holy Spirit. The second thing you study is the person of the Holy Spirit. And then the third thing you study is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and that'll be the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You see, there's, you see there was no soul there, like we've been talking about? It says, glorify God in your body and your spirit, because your soul's already sealed. See that thing? I gave you a while back on Thursday night Bible study, John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15, the seven things the Holy Spirit of God does for you. The first three found in verse 8 is He reproves the world of sin. He reproves the world of righteousness. He reproves the world of judgment. That gets you to a point that you need to get saved. Then, after He does that and you get saved, then He does four other things. He leads and guides you into all truth. He shows you prophecy. He shows you what's of God and what is not of God. And He glorifies Christ. And through that, by the Holy Ghost, you develop your relationship with God. God shows you what's right and what's wrong. God shows you, God shows you the truth of some scenario or some circumstance. God shows you uh, what's coming in the future so you can plan your life and know what's going on by the Holy Ghost. The sixth one, again, verse 6, by love unfeigned. Now, to feign something is to fake it. And there's two aspects to this one. The first one is love feigned, unfeigned to man. That simply means loving people without pretense. 
loving them unconditionally, loving them without them necessarily even doing right. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, let love be without dissimulation. Dissimulation is a big word. It means hidden under a false appearance. Uh, and you say you love somebody, but you really don't. Hey, God's people are famous for this. I mean, let's face it. I mean, how many times somebody says, well, I'm going to be praying for you. You don't think about praying for them five seconds after you're out the door. Well, I love you. Oh, you love me because you want to get something from me. You know, I mean, it's just the way God's people are. Romans 13.10 says, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. So many of God's people only pretend to love people. Uh, you know, Galatians 5, verse 6 says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. You know what he's saying? He says it isn't what you do for God. Somebody over here gets circumcised. Somebody else over here does not get circumcised. It's not what you do for God that makes you a, a viable Christian. It's how you love people based on the love God has for you. That's, it's not what you do. It's how you love. Love by faith, but faith which worketh by love. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, again, the nine fruits of the Spirit. You know what number one is? Love. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, and God make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as you do toward you. And there again, I love it. And the Lord, and the Lord make you. Sometimes he has to make us. Sometimes it's hard loving somebody. But you know what? You weren't the, and I weren't the most pretty picture of basket of roses the first time God laid eyes on us, but he loved us. Then you have the second aspect, loved unfeigned toward God. Boy, do we ever fake this one. I love you, Lord. My transmission just went out. I really love you, Lord. <clears throat> uh, there's some great verse. My favorite verse in the Bible, without a doubt, and I have all kinds of favorite verses, but this is my favorite one at this moment in time. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 8, 3. I love this verse. If any man love God, the same is known of him. You know, there's a lot of things you can fake in life. We can lie and we can fake and we can counterfeit almost every aspect of our life except we can't fake loving God. Most people don't understand it. Most people who live a lie, they think they can live, they live such a good lie in front of their wives or their husbands or in front of their friends or in front of their kids or whatever, and they think they get away with it. Uh, they get themselves deluded that, that, uh, that they, can, they can do that in front of God. First of all, the Bible says that all things are naked and open under the eyes of him which we have to do. God looks right down through the smoke. Second thing is most important. There are some characteristics that go along with loving somebody. There's some characteristics that go along with loving God. 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says, If any man love God, the same is known to him. If you love God, it shows. People know it. Because there are certain characteristics that a person has in their life when they love God. And by the same token, even though this verse is not in the Bible, if any man doesn't love God, the same is known to him. It shows. 2 Corinthians 8, 8 says, it We're to prove the sincerity of your love. Most of God's people don't even know what that, how to do that. Oh, I love God. Have you proved the sincerity of your love? Well, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. Then how do you love God if you don't even know how to prove it to it? Bible says over there in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 24, that the church is to show the proof of our love. Most churches don't even know what that, where that verse is at, if it even still is in most of the new Bibles. That thing in 8.3 is a great verse because it shows that love has to be unfeigned. Love toward man and then love toward God. Well, number seven, 
moving through these pretty good. Number seven, the word of truth, by the word of truth. Now, all these things are by, see that thing, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the love unfeigned, by the Holy Ghost. These are the things that you do that by these things you keep your fellowship, by the word of truth. In your Christian life, you have to know your Bible. You know, most of God's people, and it's, it's a true statement, and I, again, there's, a, there's exceptions to that here, of course, but there's still people in this church that don't know anything about their Bible. They've been around forever, and you don't know anymore by now, the day you walked in the door. But most of God's people only have a passing acquaintance with the Word of God. And, uh, you know, uh, it's called the Word of Truth in our text. John chapter 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy word, for thy word is truth. But, you know, I, most people never even thought probably the, the, the mind behind why God gave us a Bible. I mean, why did God give us a book, put it in a book form that you and I could read? And, and you know, the Bible, I mean, the Bible has tremendous applications and there's a thousand reasons for it. It's a history book. It's a science book. It's the book that gets you to heaven. It's all of those things. But have you ever stopped and considered what the Bible is in its simplest, most basic form? It's simply this. God had the presence of mind to know that the world was going to be a changing cesspool of sin that every hundred years or so regurgitated its sin back up in some other form. Because the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Bible, God also knew the frailty of man. How easily he was fooled by the sideshow of the devil and what he puts on. He understood that man's inability to understand and see the great truths that history always repeats itself. And when man fails to see that, then he continues to make the mistakes of history over and over and over again because it just keeps going around. And the filth just keeps coming up this way and everybody says, oh, it's new again. No, it's not new. It's just been regurgitated over the last, from the last time it was up here. He knew the devil's plan was to change all of the value systems in life to his own advantage. Uh, that's what the bottom line trick of the devil is. He does it slowly. He does it over time. He does it in a way that nobody even suspects it. He, he brings it through one stage at a time down through history. But the devil's fundamental goal is to change every value that God established and set and change it, get away with it, or reset the distribution of the value of it. I always liken it as, you know, I love Walmart. Walmart's my favorite place. Walmart is the place where man can live and survive. Walmart is my place. And by the grace of God, God has always been good to me in life, but when they built a Walmart less than a mile from my house, I knew I was the friend of God. I love Walmart. I think the best thing about Walmart is the people that go there. I love watching the people that go in there. I, I won't, if I go by the Walmart and there's not a big crowd in the parking lot, I won't even go. <laughs> I want a crowd, man. I want them lines backed up where people are going through there, watching the stuff they're buying, watch the people that, you know, how they react to this and that. I love it. But anyway, I've often thought to myself, wouldn't it be a hoot to go into Walmart some night and change all the barcodes 
on all of the items. And you would go in there the next morning, they'd open up and you'd go in and you wanted a color big screen TV. They sell those at Walmart, you know. Oh, what are you laughing at? They're the same ones you buy down at Best Buy or you buy down at uh, Phonic City or wherever you go. They're the same stuff. And you walk in there and this guy says, I've always wanted to buy one of these. So he says, well, he says, I just got almost enough money to buy one at $600. And he picks this up and see, during the night, somebody went through and changed all the barcodes. So he picks up the TV, puts it in his cart, gets a few other things, and he drives up up there and the lady scans that thing and he looks at the bill, boom, $2.98. He's saying, man, I got a deal. All the money I got in my pocket, I'm good to go, man. I was expecting to pay five, six hundred dollars for that. I got that for two dollars ninety-eight cents. And then he puts all the other stuff up. He buys a little broom. She scans that, seven hundred and forty-three dollars. <laughs> now you're back in the doldrums again. You see, I've often thought what chaos it would be at Walmart on Saturday morning. Saturday morning is the big morning. If you want some action, Saturday morning at Walmart's where it go. I'm telling you. I'm there, man. I know it. I'm there watching them. And they go in. That's where you see it. And you look at that, and, and it would be an absolute chaos. I could see the people at the checkouts going crazy. Because they're not the smartest people in the world anyhow, you know. And nice people, but, I mean, they, they, you know, they, they don't always figure it out. Uh, I mean, I've watched guys put stuff, buy stuff, container stuff, put stuff down in the containers and then put it over so they can get out with it. They never look into it. You know, a lady asked me when I go buy my water there for restart, you know, and I, I, she says, how many you got? And I said, I got 10. And she goes, blink, blink, blink. She never looks. I could say, I got one. <laughs> Off you go, see? But could you imagine the utter chaos of everybody just upside down, inside out, prices going crazy, the managers running around, everybody putting a stand up. The whole place would shut down. But you know what? That's exactly what the devil has done over the period of time. Because... Our value systems reflected. Isaiah talked about it in Isaiah 5 when he talked about a time in Israel's time when, when bad was evil was called good and good was called evil. There's a time there where the Bible says that truth has fallen in the streets. That's today. And the devil has done his work. He has absolutely changed the value on everything. Where once family was the value that was held in this country, it means nothing anymore. It means nothing anymore. Where, where, where the sanctity of, the, of everything that was marriage and all the things that went along with that and all the things that were right about that and all the things about raising your kids right and doing the things right, it's all gone now. It, we've lost everything. We've lost any stretch of a value system that can teach anything anybody. So you know what God did? God saw all of that. He understood that that was going to happen. So you know what he did? He gave man an absolute standard that would never change. The Bible. He gave something to man in its most simple, basic form. Though no matter what happened, no matter what transpired, no matter what went wrong, no matter what turned and changed, man could always go and find out what the real value of things really were. That's all the Bible really is. And you've got to have the word of truth in your life. That in no matter when or where we lived, whether it be in 1200, 500 A.D., or whether we're living today, we have a compass that keeps our course straight. Man said one time, if you took all of the pieces of literature and all the books that anybody had ever written, 
and you, you put all of those things uh, and got them in one place. You actually could cover the whole land mass of the United States of America, and then you could take what's left of all the written books and literatures and papers that man has written in the last 7,000, 4,000 years. That's how man started writing. And you could put them in a stack that would go up past the orbit of the moon, which is 250,000 miles. And ladies and gentlemen, if we could do all that today and we could put that stack up, I want to tell you something. You could judge everything that was ever written in those books in the light of one book. And that's the book that God gave you. The importance of the Word of God. I have a sermon I haven't ever, I don't think I've ever preached it to you guys, but I used to preach it in Bible conferences and it was on the Word of God. And it was five aspects of the Bible in the history of the Bible. The first one was the fact when it came to the Word of God that God thought it. It was the mind of God. But it had to go through a process before we could get it. And so the process was that the Holy Spirit of God brought it. But it still had to go through a process because Christ hadn't died on the cross. So then Jesus was the third process, and he bought it. So God thought it. The Holy Spirit brought it. Jesus bought it. But then down through church history, the devil didn't like it. So you know what the devil did? The devil fought it. So when you put the great sermon together, it's a good sermon. It went like this. God, about the Bible. God thought it. The Holy Spirit of God brought it. Jesus bought it. The devil fought it. But praise God, I got it. You got an absolute standard. And it never changes in a world that completely changes. It's the only sanity in a world that's insane. I mean, I feel like I'm living on Shutter Island and I'm the only one that's got a Bible. Number eight, by the power of God. You have to, in time in your life, and I see this in many of your lives, you have to let God work through you. Romans 15, 13 says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5 says, In my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. You see, the misconception is today, and charismatics teach this, they teach that when you got saved, you didn't get all the Holy Spirit of God there was. So you got to pray for the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and then you'll get more of the Holy Spirit of God, and then God's going to do great things with you. See, that's, that's a, that, again, bad knowledge about God. No, when you got saved, you got all of the Holy Spirit of God there was. The problem with you and me is not getting any more of the Holy Spirit. The problem with you and me is the Holy Spirit getting more of us. That's the problem. And, uh, you know, I always use my famous example, you know, that I, th- I think about uh, versus the book of Acts and where we're at today. I mean, today we have, we have communications that are so fast it's unbelievable. We have laser printing. We have the Internet. We have, the, we have uh, incredible phone connections. We can travel anywhere in the world in 8 to 10 to 12 hours. The Bible has been translated in 90% of the major languages, if not 98% of the major languages, at least 80% of the major dialects. There's 30,000 Bible colleges in America and over 200,000, probably 300,000 churches. And yet we are getting, more done, we're getting less done today with all of that then they got done in the book of Acts when they had none of that. You know why that is? Because all of these things are no replacement for the one thing that will change and set the world on its ear, and that is the power of God working through you. Has to happen sooner or later. I, I see it in the great revivals of the yesteryear, the revivals of Whitfield and Sam Jones and Mordecai Ham and Billy Sunday. 
I, I see it in all of the things. When revivals happen today, it's a joke. While we're going to go down into the, we're going to go down to the inner city today, and we're going to pass out food, and we always go to the um, uh, the uh, City Union Mission once a month. Uh, it'll be at the end of the month when we go down there and do that service. Most people don't even know that the City Union Mission uh, goes all the way back to uh, a, a lady. Uh, her name was uh, Anna Chambers. Anna Chambers, in the, around the turn of the century, ran one of the most popular, high-class uh, brothels in Kansas City. I mean, she was an absolute, the queen of uh, a prostitution in Kansas City. She was paid off the cops, all the corrupt people down there. And around 1911, 1920, somewhere in there, a great evangelist called Mordecai Ham came to Kansas City and preached a great revival. And she got saved. And when she got saved, she turned her life around. And all of the brothels that she owned, she turned over for women to be reinstituted and to get right and wound up being today the City Union Mission. We used to go down to the camp down there in Warsaw, Missouri for years and years and years. And they had a big uh, place there where it was their day room where they went in when it rained. And all along the wall, I guess they didn't know what to do with it, was the most ornate stuff, furniture, antique stuff you ever saw in your life that came out of all of her homes. It was down there with the big mirrors on them, with the big uh, uh, cut wood. It was absolutely fabulous stuff, all because of the power of God in a great revival and it hit Kansas City. You see, back then when revival came, the whole city changed. Today when revival comes, nothing changes. <clears throat> nothing changes by the power of God. Then the last thing, verse 7. By the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. And lastly, the most, and probably most important, putting on the whole armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. In that particular passage, you'll find seven pieces of armor to protect the relationship and our fellowship we have with Christ. Each one have a specific function. You can get on the website. We've taught it many, many times. Not my goal, my, my goal to go all lay it out today, but he talks about the loins girt about with truth. Talked about the breastplate of righteousness. Talks about feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's what you're going to do this afternoon. Talked about the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. Praying always uh, with prayer and supplication in the spirit. You see, all of these things are by the armor of righteousness that you put on. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, simply says this, and knowing that the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering or wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. It's called the armor of righteousness. It's called the armor of light. And it's called the whole armor of God. And these is what you do in your life. Each one has a specific function that when you put it in your life and put it part of your world, that it changes uh, every aspect of your life. And then by these nine things, your fellowship is sure, never to be broken. And by these nine things, continue to develop it. Now, next week, we're going to take the nine great contrasts of the Christian life. And I'm going to show you, when we talked a little while back about the seven things that changed the day you got saved and how key it is to see how God sees you now from what He did see you then, I'm going to show you next week that contrast of how God sees you and how the world sees you. 
And it, it's, a, it's a great aspect to this, and every child of God should know and understand these things. Let me have every head bowed and every eye closed just a second. Let me ask you a question.